Genesis in chapter 26. And uh, we're going to pick up tonight where we left off this morning. So we're going to pick up tonight in verse 6, Genesis chapter 26 and verse 6. And we're going to read on down through verse 22. Through verse 22. So Genesis 26, beginning in verse 6, and we're going to read through verse 22. Here's what we read. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. And when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. This morning we noticed how similar Isaac's situation in Genesis 26 is to our situation as Christians in this life. Like Isaac, we are pilgrims in a world that is not our home, and yet one day will be our home. Like Isaac, he was living on a land which which one day would belong to the future kingdom. The future kingdom promised to him, and yet at this time in which he is living, the land is not his, and that kingdom is not yet in existence on that land. But a day was coming when the pagans in the land would be removed and a glorious kingdom would be established there in Canaan. 
This was fulfilled when, when Israel, the nation of Israel, came and, and drove out God's enemies and established their nation there. But as we've seen before, that wasn't really the ultimate fulfillment. In fact, Israel never really drove out all the pagans that they were supposed to from the land. Nor was the presence of God with them in a full way. God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, a place where none of them could go except one of them one day a year. No, what all of this pointed to was the future, to the work that God was going to do in these last days and in the last day. We too are pilgrims waiting for Christ's return. And He's going to bring to fulfillment this kingdom that He promised long ago to Abraham and to Isaac. The kingdom that He came announcing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom that you and I are a part of is the church of Jesus Christ. And so Isaac's life as a pilgrim and our lives as pilgrims are are very similar. And so what we have in Genesis 26 is, is something of a model of what the Christian life can look like. As we read Genesis 26 and we see what happens along Isaac's pilgrimage, we have a picture of the kinds of things we should expect along our pilgrimage in this world. This world in which we are strangers and foreigners waiting for the day when we will be established on the new heavens and the new earth in a glorious kingdom. In verses 1 through 5, which we looked at this morning, we see that it is the promises of God. It is the promises of God that keep us walking this path of faith. It is the promises of God that keep us serving Him and trusting Him, obeying Him, and looking to that glorious day ahead. Isaac lived by faith in God's promises. We as Christians live by faith in God's promises. But I see six other lessons taught in this chapter. In verses 6 through 11, we're going to see that unholy fear is dangerous and leads us into sin. In verses 12 and 13, we're going to see that God does indeed give his people blessings in this life as they wait for the ultimate blessing in the life to come. In verses 14 through 22, we're going to see that God's people can expect persecution and hostility in this life. In verses 23 through 25, we're going to be reminded that this pilgrimage is one marked by communion with God, marked by worshiping Him and walking with Him. In verses 26 through 33, we're going to see that our lives as pilgrims in this world can have an evangelistic influence upon others. So altogether, I see seven doctrines in this chapter. The first one we saw this morning, namely that the Christian pilgrimage, the the Christian walk through this life is to be motivated and strengthened by belief in the promises of God. But there's six more to go. And I want to try and tackle three of those tonight. Three of those tonight. And so let's look at the second one that I see in this chapter, the second doctrine, the second principle, the second lesson that I see for us. And it's this, that unholy fear will lead Christians into sin. Our verses are 6 through 11, so let's begin reading verses 6 and 7. So Isaac settled in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Apparently, there was a very real 
and significant danger of Isaac being killed so that another man could have his wife. This tells us something about the ancient pagan culture in which Isaac lives. This was the kind of thing that could happen. This was the kind of thing that probably did happen on somewhat regular occurrence. It's not by accident that God declared in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Apparently it was not that uncommon for a man wanting another man's wife to kill the man to take his wife. Even with King David, the man after God's own heart, we find his lust for another man's wife ultimately leads him to murder that woman's husband. Now, King David was a man that feared the Lord. King David was a man who who had a relationship with the Lord and, and knew God's truth. And so if David could be ensnared in such a sin, it should not really surprise us that these kinds of things was happening among the pagan peoples who did not know God. And so Isaac had reason to be afraid, and he was afraid. Isn't it amazing, though, how quickly we move from God's glorious promises in the verses above to suddenly Isaac's fear in the face of danger, right? We've just read God's word to Isaac, sojourn in this land and I will be with you and I will bless you. God is with Isaac. He's staying in the land, right? Verse 6, So he settled in Gerar. Isaac settled in Gerar. Isaac believes. Isaac obeys. And God said, If you obey me, I will be with you. I will bless you. So God is with Isaac. God has purpose to bless Isaac. Isaac has every reason to be confident and assured that God is going to take care of him. And when God is for you, who can be against you? What reason do we have to fear if God has promised that He is going to be with us? But just like Peter, walking on the water, taking his eyes off of Christ, seeing the winds and the waves, fear gripping his heart, Peter begins to drown into the water. So Isaac took his eyes off the promises of God, saw the danger around him, and began to be afraid. He saw the circumstances and allowed fear to take hold of his heart. When fear grips us, when fear grips us, it leads us into sin. Proverbs 29, 25. This is a very helpful verse to hide in your heart. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You know what a snare is, right? It's a It's a trap. It's like little kids who who have dug a a deep hole in the ground and then they cover the hole with with some branches and leaves so that they can't see it. And then they begin to lead another kid into their trap and their friend has no idea what's coming and they're all excited. They're just talking to their friend, leading him along and then then suddenly the ground gives way beneath his feet and, and he's fallen into the trap. He's been caught in the snare. That's the idea here in Proverbs. When there is fear of man in our hearts, that fear will lay a trap for us. And we will end up saying foolish things. We will end up making foolish decisions. And we will end up acting disobediently to God when such fear has gripped us. We're going to get caught up in sin when unholy fear is governing our actions. 
Only when we have confidence in our God, only when we have confidence in our God's promises, will we be able to stay true to His Word and do what He says, even when circumstances look scary. When we trust God more than we fear others, we will do the right thing and receive blessing. And we think about big things happening here at Mount Hermon right now. And as many of you know, this week we'll be sending out letters to 52 members of our church, informing them that their membership has been placed on probation. These are folks that we've tried and tried to contact. We've tried and tried to to bring them back to church. We adopted this attendance policy uh, uh, many months ago now, and we sent copies of it to all of these, these people, and none of them have returned. And if none of them do return by the end of the year, we'll be removing 52 names from our membership role in 2012. Now, these are people that some of you know. These are people that are, that are family members or kinfolk of some of us. And some of these people may get upset. Some of these people might, might badmouth our church in the community if this unfolds. Some of these people may respond with hostility to our attempts to love them in this way, and it is love. What would fear of man do in this situation? Fear of man would say, don't do this. Fear of man would say, back down. Fear of man would lay a snare of disobedience for us. But we have the promises of God. We have the Word of God on this matter that that if we do what is right out of faith in our hearts, God will be with us and God will bless us. And so I would ask you, as an individual and as a family, what is the application of this for you tonight? In what area might you be dealing with unholy fear? God has promised you that as you live this Christian life, He will be with you. In what area of your life are you forgetting this? What relationship is scaring you? What situation or circumstance is bringing fear into your heart? Friends, if you allow that fear to govern your actions, it will lead you into sin. You will make foolish decisions. You will go down the wrong path. Trust God in every situation. Trust God. Look to His Word. Act confidently according to His will. And He will be with you and He will bless you. And you have no reason to fear. Isaac was overcome with fear and he sinned. He told the men of the city that Rebekah was his sister. Now yes, Abraham, his father, had done the same before, but at least when Abraham had said that Sarah was his sister, he was half right. She was his half-sister. right? Isaac's just lying. Rebekah was not his sister. Rebekah was his wife. This is a, a bold-faced lie spoken by Isaac to save his own skin. It was a lie that put Rebekah at risk of being taken as another man's wife. It was a wimpy, ungodly, unloving, untrusting thing to do. Isaac has been portrayed to us in the book of Genesis as a very positive role model of faith, but but he really stumbles here. This is a serious sin. 
God had declared that it would be through Isaac and Rebekah's offspring that His glorious promises would come true. Now, Isaac puts his wife, through whom the promises are supposed to come true, in danger of being taken into the arms of another man. His actions are completely out of step with the will and plan of God. What God had revealed... So look at verses 8 through 11 and see what happens next. Verses 8 through 11. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. And so Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. There are some very clear differences between what happened when Abraham was in Gerar and what happened when Isaac was in Gerar. In the account of Abraham, the father of our present Abimelech, the Abimelech Sr., who was reigning when Abraham was there, he took Sarah to be one of his own wives. He had every intention of making Sarah his own. Here, it's not Abimelech who takes Isaac's wife. It's the men of the city who are asking about Isaac's wife. In the account of Abraham... Abimelech Sr., who was reigning then, had heard from God in a dream that Sarah was Abraham's wife. In this account, Abimelech Jr. sees Isaac and Rebekah acting as a married couple, and it exposes the truth to him. Our passage says that Abimelech looked through a window and and saw Isaac and Rebekah laughing together. And it's interesting, the term laughing there is the, the verb of the word Isaac. It's the name of Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah were Isaacing together. Some translate this word as caressing one another. Others say they were acting in a playful manner with one another. But whatever this word means, Abimelech clearly recognized that this was a husband and a wife. This was a very humbling moment for Isaac. Because now we have the pagan Abimelech who does not know the true God lecturing Isaac who does know the true God on true morality. God can and often does use unbelievers as a means of grace to remind us of who we ought to be. Isaac's lie has put him in a low place. This worshiper of the true God is going to be admonished and corrected by a worshiper of idols. Abimelech says to him, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. Then Abimelech does what a noble king should do. He legislates morality. He gives a decree. He says, If anyone seeks to harm Isaac or Rebekah, that person will be killed. There's a lot of talk right now about the proper role of government. Um, What is it that a government should do and a government should not do? 
And whether we're talking about a local government or a state government or a federal government, Romans 13, 1 through 4 still remains, in my mind, the clearest passage in Scripture on that subject. And so we're not going to read it tonight, but I would encourage you to go home and study Romans 13, 1 through 4 to get an idea of what the Bible says about the proper role of government. And if nothing else is clear from that passage, it's, it, this is clear. Governments exist to restrain immorality. Governments exist to put a lockdown on immorality so that it doesn't burst the seams and go out of control. Don't believe those people who say government has no right to legislate morality. God created governments to legislate morality. Don't believe those people who say government has no right to outlaw abortion or to outlaw gay marriage or to outlaw this moral issue. That's exactly what governments have the right to do. They have the right from God to say this is right, this is wrong, and to punish those who do what is wrong. And that's what Abimelech does here. He gives a a moral decree. He he declares that anyone who, who hurts or lays a hand on or who would dare to do harm to Isaac or Rebekah, though they are foreigners and strangers, they are to be protected to be treated right. So the first doctrine that we saw in Genesis 26 is that our life in this world should be motivated by the promises of God. The second truth that we see in Genesis 26 is that unholy fear will lead us into sin. Now let's turn our attention to the third doctrine in this chapter. And this doctrine is that God does indeed bless His children in this life. Yes, our eyes are to be set on the future. There is a great prize that is ahead of us. Living with Jesus forever in paradise, that's the goal. The great blessings of God are ahead of us and in front of us, and yet even as the ultimate blessings are down the road from us, God is still giving us blessings right here, right now, to help us as we travel this road. God is giving us blessings in this life, in this moment to sustain us as we take this pilgrimage to the new heavens and the new earth. In Isaac's life, we see that God brings great material blessing. God told Isaac to stay in the land. There was a famine in the land, but Isaac stayed. And what happened? God blesses him beyond anything he could have imagined. Look at verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Does that sound like a famine? (laughs) A hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. Now, this is meant to be a shadow of something grander because as great as material blessings can be, spiritual blessings are much, much better. So don't read this and say, well, Isaac trusted God and God made him rich. So if I trust God, God's going to make me rich. He will make you rich, but it may not be with money. It may not be with many sheep, right? Like it was with Isaac. I wouldn't know what to do with many sheep, right? But there are even better blessings, Right? When we look at the story of Isaac, we see things on a smaller scale that get grander in the new covenant. And what's grander for us is that rather than being blessed with material blessings, we get blessed with spiritual blessings. 
The point of this passage is that everyone who trusts God will find that He blesses them in this life. The form of those blessings may vary, but God will bless His people as they take this pilgrimage in this world. Now, it should not be that unusual a thing for Christians to find themselves becoming wealthy. That is, it should not be that strange for us to maybe know a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ and and to see them gaining material things because Christians should be the best kind of workmen. Christians should be skilled at what they do. Christians should be the kind of people who strive for excellence in all things. And therefore, Christians should be the kind of people that employers want to hire, the kind of people that employers want to promote into positions of leadership. And therefore, it shouldn't be a strange or unusual thing to see a brother or sister in Christ rising in status or rising in wealth. When that happens, it's a very positive thing and it's a blessing from God. But we must not think that that will happen for all believers God's providence rules over all things, and His plans for us are different from one another. Jesus Christ was not a wealthy man. And many of the most faithful followers of Christ throughout the centuries have never known great wealth. But every one of them would tell you that they've known great blessing. God gives us blessings along our pilgrimage. Maybe there will be material blessing to, to a great degree. Maybe there won't be. But He will bless you with the better thing, spiritual blessings. That is, every grace you need to make it safely and securely to the last day when you will be given Christ Himself in the new heavens and the new earth forever. God sees our needs and His grace sustains us. So that's doctrine three. Even in this life, along our pilgrimage, God brings us blessings and help. But now let's look at doctrine four. This will be our last one for tonight. Doctrine four. Namely, that we can expect persecution and hostility in this life. There is a world of peace ahead of us, but we can expect persecution and hostility in this life. When Abimelech, and the Philistines see the blessing that is coming upon Isaac, when they see the wealth that is coming upon Isaac, they don't rejoice with him. They don't celebrate with him. They don't praise Isaac's God and say, thank you for being so merciful to Isaac. No, their response was a hostile one. Look at verses 14 to 22 again. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, 
For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So notice what we see in these verses. The Philistines envied the prosperity of Isaac. Here, in a time of famine, he is flourishing. Everyone else is hurting. Shouldn't Isaac be hurting too? We hear that kind of talk these days. It's an economic downturn. Everybody's hurting. And there's these few over here that are being blessed and that are wealthy. Why should they be wealthy when everybody else isn't? And so there's envy that's behind this. The the Philistines were jealous that that Isaac had all that, that they didn't, all that they wished was theirs. Dear Christian, if you truly walk around, not so much with material blessings, but if you walk around in this life with spiritual blessings, if you walk around with peace in your heart, joy in your heart, a real understanding of truth and a real contentment about you, people are going to notice. And some people aren't going to like you because of it. Some people, because their heart is a storm, because their soul is in, is in torment and tumult, they, they're going to be so upset that they're not going to like you because you're a person who's marked by, by happiness and, and by peace. Why do you get to be like this when so many others are not? And so there, there will be others who, who may envy you or may even hate you. I'm not certain about exactly when the Philistines stopped up these wells that had belonged to Abraham. This may have happened before Isaac came down to Gerar, that after Abraham had died, they went ahead and filled in his wells with dirt. But some commentators think that it was now. It was after Isaac arrived in Gerar, because the Philistines saw how he was growing in wealth, that out of envy, they went out and clogged up with dirt the wells that he was using that his father Abraham had dug. That this was their method of trying to drive Isaac away from them. They sabotaged his water supply. Isaac moves out to the valley, the valley of Gerar. He moves out of the city area, tough to call it a city area, but out of the, right there close to the, the, the hubbub of things, he moves to the valley. And there he redigs the wells that his father Abraham had used a generation before. He gives those wells the same names that his father Abraham had given them. And in this way, he is stepping out in faith on God's promise that one day this land is going to be his. One day this land is going to be his descendants. But when Isaac's servants dig up a well of spring water, that's when the hostility really kicks in. Spring water was considered very, very precious in this region, really at any time, but especially during a famine. Because here is a constantly flowing supply of fresh water. This, was going, this discovery of this well of spring water was going to bring to Isaac and his family and his herds great benefit. And so what happens? The local herdsmen begin fighting with the herdsmen of Isaac, claiming that that water should be theirs. Remember, Isaac is the foreigner. These other guys are the locals. So the locals come around and and they contend with him over this well and declare that it is theirs. And so Isaac calls it Isaac, which means to contend. The fact that Isaac names this new well shows that he's claiming ownership of it. It's my well. It was my men who dug it up. But the hostility continues. And so another well is dug. And again, there is quarreling over that well. 
In fact, Isaac calls that well sitna, which means hostility. In the end, Isaac backs down. He moves to another part of the valley. He seems to have had both the moral high ground and the legal high ground on those previous two wells, but the the hostility and the persecution in the end caused him to, to, to move elsewhere and dig. And so, he moves to another place and he digs a well. And this time there is peace. This time there is no quarreling. And so Isaac calls that final well Rehoboth, which means open spaces. It actually comes from the verb used in Isaac's final statement. For now the Lord has made room for us. That that verb, has made room for us, is behind the name of that well, Rehoboth. And Isaac says, now we shall be fruitful in the land. Notice the providence of God here. Isaac sees it. He says, the Lord has made room for us. In other words, Isaac looks at what has happened with with the hostility and the persecution and the quarreling over the wells, and he sees the hand of God in all that has occurred. That God was behind these things bringing him to this place where he can now be at peace and be fruitful. Isaac doesn't see the hostility that's been shown to him as something that was outside of God's control. Rather, he sees that God's hand was working through the hostility, through the persecution, to bring him to the place where God wanted him to be in this season of his life. Here was the place where God was finally going to make him even more increasingly fruitful. I think that's really important to remember, that when we suffer hostility or persecution in this life, these things are still a part of God's good plan for us. When people take advantage of us, when people defraud us because they know that, that, that we're seeking to follow Christ and that we're seeking to be loving people and that we're not going to go blow up on them. And so they think we're meek and mild. We're easy to be taken advantage of. How are we going to respond? What's going to keep us from responding wickedly? Well, God is with us. God has promised to bless us. And God is working even through hostility, even through persecution for our good. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. And so here is our fourth doctrine in the chapter, namely that we should expect hostility and persecution in this life. Jesus said to His disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Think about that. Sheep in the midst of wolves. Picture a sheep in the middle of a wolf pack. It's not a pretty picture. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. He told his disciples, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and before kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Jesus went on to say, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words, when when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he doesn't simply say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men and everything's going to be glorious. He says, follow me, I will make you fishers of men and it's going to be tough. 
and it's going to hurt. But I will be with you. The book of Revelation seems to make clear that hostility and persecution are only going to increase as the final day draws nearer. Governments, in the book of Revelation, we have this picture of governments who are opposed to Christians, who are opposed to the Christian God, who are opposed to Christian principles. Military and economic forces turned against God's people. And we can't help but think of countries like um, North Korea, or countries like Iran, or countries like Saudi Arabia, or countries like the Sudan, especially the northern Sudan that we talked about this morning, where already governments are turned against Christian people to do them harm, specifically targeting God's people. Already these things are coming true. We need to be regularly reminded that persecution will accompany those who follow Christ. And folks, for our brothers and sisters in many parts of the world, the persecution they face is far worse than what we have known. I'll give you just one example. This was uh, from this past Thursday. The headline read, Two Christians Seriously Injured for Refusing Islam in Pakistan. Uh, The source was International Christian Concern, if you're familiar with that agency. And I'll just read you one paragraph. Liaquat Munawar, a Pakistani Christian, reported that his brother Ishfaq Munawar and his friend Naeem Masih were attacked by Pashtun youth in Karachi, Pakistan. Ishfaq and Naeem were traveling home from a church service when they were flagged down by a group of Pashtun youth. The youth questioned their identities and why it was that they were traveling through the town. When they discovered that Ishfaq and Naim were Christians, they told them to receive the Kamah. That's the Islamic conversion creed. It's what you say to convert to Islam. And they told them that this was the only way they would let them leave the town alive. When these two men refused to read the Kamah, the Pashtun youth rammed their car into Ishfaq and Naim and then proceeded to beat them with iron rods until they were unconscious. The youth suffered a broken jaw, five broken teeth, and several other injuries between them. Now this is not the kind of persecution that we typically face here in America. This is what we need to be praying for. We have our missions moments and throughout our weeks, our brothers and sisters who experience this kind of persecution. But friends, even here, we should expect some level of hostility, some level of persecution against us if we are serious about following Christ and doing what He says in the midst of a dark world. And so I would simply ask you this, how are you going to respond when someone treats you wrongly, when someone treats you unrighteously because you're trying to do the right thing? Because you're trying to follow Christ. Peter gives us an answer about how we should respond when people treat us wickedly for doing good. Here's what he says. 1 Peter 3. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you 
for the reason for the hope that is in you. But do it in gentleness and in respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In other words, hear the commands that God gives us about how to respond when people treat us wrongly. I mean, Isaac was in the right here. His people dug the wells. He was treated with false, on false premises. But he responded well. How should we respond when we're treated wrongly? We should have no fear of others. We should not be troubled in our hearts. We're to honor Christ in our hearts as Lord We're to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us. We're to speak to those who are persecuting us with gentleness. We're to speak to those who are being hostile to us with respect. Isn't that interesting? With respect. People who are treating us wrongly, we're to treat with respect. That's what God says. We're to maintain a good conscience in the way we respond. In fact, we're to respond in such a pure way that our good behavior should cause the others to be put to shame for the way that they've been treating us. Above all, Peter says, remember that if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. God's hand is behind it all, and He will bring good to you even through the hostility. So, four lessons today, three more next week. Here are the four lessons today. We should live by faith in God's promises. We should not allow our lives to be governed by unholy fear. We should know that there are blessings that God gives to us even in this life. And we should be ready and prepared for persecution and hostility as we follow Him. And so I pray that God will help us to believe these things, to apply these things to our own situations and circumstances. Amen? Amen. Let's try it again. Amen. Okay. Let's pray.